I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, a nice warm church on a cold day. And we have a thank you card from Alex Bendina out in Arizona as he recovers from his stroke. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. A spoonful of sugar really does help the medicine go down. It is a wonderful gift. Sincerely, Alex and Shirley. Somebody sent him a little spoon, and I forget what was on it, but just helping him to know that he's loved by his Tennessee family. Some announcements. There is no ladies' Bible study at Gail's house tomorrow night. Uh, hopefully all the ladies who were coming, including Gail, are going to be taken out for Valentine's Day or her birthday. Um, that would be a prayer request. I usually try to honor my wife on Valentine's Day. I don't buy her flowers because $50 for a dozen roses, so instead I let her pick whatever she wants off the dollar menu. <laughs> um, true church conference. Isaac wants those who are going or those who are interested in the church conference to meet up front directly after the service. That is coming up very quickly. You can see all the other announcements in the bulletin. But now, because we love our children, we have a special presentation for some children. So I'm going to ask Gail if she would help Minnie Hargraves and Stella Wright come up to the platform. Abby Taylor was supposed to be here, but she was not feeling well this morning. So come on up, ladies. Um, a brief explanation that we present a children's ESV Bible. Come on all the way up. Go on the other side for me. We present a children's ESV Bible to the children who enter kindergarten or a little older, and it's the same Bible as the one in their Sunday school class. That Bible can help as they're learning to read. This is one that they can grow with. It helps pre-readers because it has many illustrations, and it helps readers because it has many Bible helps written by folks who write our children's Sunday school curriculum. So we try to integrate it. And some of the children already have a Bible, so we, have, uh, we give parents the option to pick another book. So Gail, would you present the books to these wonderful young ladies? Turn those around and show them to everybody out in that congregation so they can see. Um, okay. Join me as I pray for these special ladies. Father, I thank you that this church has so many wonderful children that are here to grow, and they bring so much joy and energy and bubbly enthusiasm to our congregation. You've entrusted us with a sacred duty to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I thank you for the ladies that devote their time to their little charges. Please bless their efforts. May they make incredible contributions to our children's growth. And I thank you for the moms and dads and the grandparents that create a home where Jesus Christ is honored, worshiped, and all the home study and devotions that go on. 
Please protect these girls as they grow, and may they conform to Jesus Christ more and more, and may these books really be a blessing to them. In Jesus' name, amen. with these children. Next week, we get another blessing. We'll dedicate uh, a couple uh, newborns here, and we look forward to that. And it's just a joy to see them grow and to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and your participation in it, in um, prayer and ministry to them. Um, Catherine leads a, a children's prayer group, and if you're not a part of that and you're not sure what that uh, is about, we do pray for the children on a, uh, a, on a regular basis in a coordinated fashion. Appreciate her handling that as well as uh, others of you who are participating in that. We, we're going to pray for each one of these, that they will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord, that they will make that profession of faith and uh, demonstrate it in believer's baptism that they'll also continue in the faith and be uh, the light uh, of the world, uh, of Christ's light in, in this world. And so we'll certainly pray for that. And, and it is beautiful to see how they blossom and, and uh, unfold. Part of that is, of course, teaching them God's word. And, and we've chosen to do this, and we're emphasizing that this month in our uh, reading and meditation and memorization of Bible verses. If you don't already have it in the back, there's a little bookmark you can get to keep up with the verses that we're working on. And if you notice, this month here, we're working uh, pretty much all the way through Psalm 103. And we will, if you stay with this program, you'll wind up memorizing the entire chapter of Psalm 103. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to it, or you can just listen. I'll read part of that and pray for us to begin our worship time. After I've done reading our section for this morning, I'm going to give you a moment to reflect on what I've read and prepare your heart to worship Christ, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let me read this beginning part of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made it known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Let us pray.
Father, we have gathered together today as your people to bless your holy name. I pray truly from all that is within us, we would indeed bless your holy name and not forget those benefits that you granted to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Forgiving us of our iniquity would be certainly enough, but beyond that, to heal and to hold and to redeem and to crown with your steadfast love and mercy, I pray that your people would truly remember this great truth, that you don't deal with us according to our sin, but according to your grace. And so may we stand fast and faithful in that. May we rejoice and bless your name daily, regardless of whatever circumstances that we might find ourselves in. May we truly know and remember who you are and forget not all your benefits. We do pray again, reminded of these little ones who come along, I do pray for them that they would learn what it means to bless your holy name. I pray that you would keep them. And for those that have confessed Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray that you continue to sanctify them and hold them by your grace. I pray that you will mold all of us into the image of your Son. I pray that indeed we who transgress, we will remember that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we, we confess daily and often I pray, Father, that by your grace and through the power of the Spirit, that you would indeed conform us into the image of your dear Son. I pray that you would draw us together as your people to bless your holy name, to encourage one another to love and good works. I pray that you would encourage us to find great joy and peace in you and delight in our worship together of your holy name this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love is eternal. The Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. His faithful love comforts us. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, and for great is his faithful love to us. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Let's uh, begin our singing this morning by standing and taking our hymn books and turning to number 96. Great is thy faithfulness. <clears throat> number 96. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadows of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassion, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is 
Turn to 573, 573, heaven came down. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Romans 4, 573.
sunshine in your soul today I love that we get to sing and praise before I have the opportunity to come up here and uh, and read God's word with you um, do you remember the day that heaven came down and glory filled your soul I know I do this morning we're gonna read Psalm 93 and 94 Psalm 93, 94, if you're reading along in your pew Bible, that's page 498, and that is the English Standard Version. Let's go along with the version that we uh, give to the children. Now, we're reading through these psalms, one or two at a time, and um, 
we've providentially come to this section this morning with some rich biblical truth about who still reigns and who will forever reign. And the fact that this reigning Lord will not forsake his people. In 90, uh, Psalm 93, we see a description of our reigning Lord. There's only uh, five verses there, but it's rich in content, and I'm supposed to keep this short on time, so I won't say a whole lot about it, but read through that with me and, and, and recognize that it's the Lord that reigns. Psalm 94 tells us that this reigning Lord will not forsake his people. It describes his people as his heritage. You'll see he's called the God of vengeance. Verses 20 and 21, we see a description of rulers that frame injustice by statute. The idea is they're in power and they are able to make laws. And they make laws that protect evil. Verse 21 goes on to say that they condemn the innocent to death. I can't read that without thinking of thousands of unborn children that are murdered in our country every day. If you were here a couple weeks back, Pastor mentioned that there is a closed, thank God, abortion clinic in our city. And the waiting room of that place had been turned into a memorial. And I've also visited that place. I broke down and wept when I was there. But our Lord will repay the proud what they deserve. He does see what they do. But we also see hope and comfort in Psalm 94. Verse 12 tells us that blessed is the man whom you discipline to give him rest from days of trouble. It's through discipline from God that we're able to be spared more and more trouble of our own foolishness and ignorance and sinfulness by being disciplined from God. He's, he saves us from some of that. Now, we all experience some, but through continuous discipline from God, we're saved from some of that. The passage that Pastor read earlier talks about that he does not repay us according to our iniquities. That is written to those who are believers, those who have had that day where heaven came down and had glory fill their soul. Verse 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Despite the negative and, and, and frustrating things that we see in the world, the things that wear on us and, and burden our hearts, look to Christ and you'll be consoled. Because the Lord does reign. Let's start in verse 1, chapter 93. Read along with me. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. 
mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you this morning that you are the God of vengeance that you are the judge of the world, that your justice and righteousness are perfect. We have faith and confidence, and we know that you see the evil, and it will not go unpunished. We know, Lord, that every sin that has ever been committed will be paid for by blood and death that of our own, or that of Christ. We pray this morning, Lord, that though there, there are many troubles on our hearts, 
that we would look to Christ for consolation, that we would always look to Christ for comfort, for hope, for peace. Bless our time this morning, Lord, as we, we learn of Christ. I pray that you would continue to make all of us more and more like our Savior each day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Amen. Thank you, ladies. Indeed, I hope you know that that place, as Isaac read about the consolation in God, and as they sang about a secret place with him. And I pray that you would know that refuge. We learn more today. We invite you to John chapter 20. We're going to look at the third vignette, if you will, that's mentioned here in this resurrection account by John. Jesus had been teaching his disciples for three years now. But they weren't quite ready for prime time, if you will. And it's demonstrated here in the aftermath of his resurrection. Jesus is, dis- is betrayed, if you remember. His disciples then scatter. John and Peter, we learn, kind of sneak back in to see what was going on. But they're at a distance. And Peter, if you remember, while Jesus was in trial denied Jesus three times. They're not only lacking courage, if you will, understandably to some degree, I guess, but ultimately they're lacking confidence in the very word that Christ had told them. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen multiple times over that three-year period of direct teaching I'll give you an example of it, of the record of it from Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Matthew notes, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He taught them all of this before it actually happened, including this rejection, including the death, and yes, the promise of a resurrection, not in the eschaton, the end of the age, which they certainly affirmed and believed, but he said on the third day. Well, this is the third day. So what is the problem? In verse 9 of chapter 20, we're getting some explanation of it. Note here, verse 9 of chapter 20, they didn't understand the Scripture that he should rise from the dead. They didn't really understand, in the sense, fully acknowledge and believe what the Scriptures had said up to this point, what Jesus had said directly to them, the very Word of God that he would rise from the dead. They didn't comprehend it to the full degree. Essentially, this is unbelief. It isn't unbelief in the sense that they were unbelievers in Jesus. They didn't have confidence, though, in what he said. They were lacking, if you will, in their belief. For them to go forward, they're going to need a greater confidence in God's word In Christ's word, Peter would later admonish his disciples in his second epistle. He would call them to grow in grace 
and of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the knowledge of him so that indeed he would be glorified. This is a process in which someone who comes to Christ then would need to grow in that grace and knowledge of him. Not just knowing this information. They knew all the information. It is actually truly believing in it where it affects your actions, your affections, your behavior. Now, it's easy, and as we read through this text and see their situation, they had been taught by Jesus for three years, and he had told them specifically what is happening. It would be easy for us to sit there and look at them and think, well, their unbelief here at this point is hard to understand. And then if you stop for a moment and think about our own experiences, perhaps, and many times in which we might doubt what God had said, his word, if you will, maybe we can give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt, if you will. It is this unbelief that we need help with, even those that are in Christ. I remember a boy that was brought to Jesus. The father cries out. He recognized that Jesus will heal this boy of a demon infliction, and yet he cries out and says to Christ, I believe, but help my unbelief, my Mark 9, 24. We may experience anxiety, for example, but that really is an expression of unbelief. We're admonished to be anxious for what? Nothing. But instead, our response should be to make our requests, our prayers, our supplications to God. Yet, anxiety is really unbelief, and there are many more examples. We do believe, that is, we trust Christ, and yet our faith is not strong enough. At times, our flesh fails us. It's imperfect, and so we must receive strength from the Lord himself. The help that we need will come through his holy word. This appearing here now in our text at verse, beginning at verse 19, we'll read that section. Jesus is going to appear for a number of reasons. It does validate and verify his resurrection, if you will, to those very disciples. He doesn't go off to the rest of the world, but to those specific disciples, he's going to appear to them. They need an affirmation of all that he had said, and he will appear to them for that. But he also wants to emphasize some of those concepts for ministry, essentials really, if you will, that they will need to carry forth because... He has risen from the dead, and he said he will ascend to the Father. And they will be here, these discouraged, doubtful disciples who will need to preach the gospel and, and stand in the place of Jesus. So let's look at this vignette, if you will, beginning verse 19 down to verse 23. On the evening of that day... It's the day of his resurrection, the first day of the week. 
the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent to me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let us pray. Father, I pray now that you will grant an understanding of your word to that very Holy Spirit that is granted to them and to us as well. Illuminate our hearts and mind to hear and heed the very words of Christ this day. I pray in his name. Amen. Now, I want you to note first here, verse 19, it gives the setting, it's repeated again here on the evening of that day. And it is repeated here, note it says the very first day of the week. As we mentioned, this first day of the week is what we would think of as Sunday, or hence the, as later becomes described as the Lord's Day. It is this day, the first day of the week, in which Jesus constantly appears to his disciples, and hence it becomes a day of worship in time. He doesn't go to the masses over the next 40 days. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the elders. He doesn't go to Pilate. He goes to the disciples. That's where he's going. He needs to equip them for the work of the ministry. And so he does so in these days of appearance for his final ascension to heaven. Note their condition, if you will. It says they were in this locked room, verse 19, and the reason is that they are in for fear, it says, of the Jews. That's understandable. In addition to being discouraged about all that has happened, they're also in fear for their own life. Understandably, because these, the Jews mentioned here are the leaders, and they were just instrumental in putting Christ to death, and so they're looking out for their own circumstance. Understandable, so they're not only gathered in a secret place, but a locked room, if you will. If they could take Jesus out in their mindset, well, they're no match for these Jews, these rulers. So, they still gather, however, and they gather here, notably, on the first day of the week. Notice what happens. Jesus comes, and he simply stands now among them. So they're locked together. They're in great fear. They're great disappointment, discouragement about all this happened. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is in their midst. Now, no explanation on exactly how he got there, but by implication, I guess you could certainly say he didn't knock on the door. He wasn't, the doors weren't unlocked and he was let in. He just appeared. 
This is the, uh, a description then of the unique state in which Christ exists now in a glorified body. He has the ability to be translated, if you will, from one place to another to be in this both to live in actually a spiritual realm and a physical realm at the same time. He demonstrates that there is a physicality to them. Note in the text here, he even shows him these scars that actually remain in his physical body, kept there on purpose, in perpetuity, to remind us of what Christ has done. He has paid for their sin. So, but there is a physicality to this body where he demonstrates that. Also, as we'll read later, he does actually eat food with them something a spirit wouldn't do. So, we may not fully understand what this body is like, and yet here it is able to be there physically and not be constrained by physical constraints. Paul describes this, by the way, in a little greater detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he calls the the resurrected body, the glorified body, as a spiritual body in that sense. It's kind of putting two opposites together, right? A spiritual body, that's the point. It has a physicality and it has a spiritual aspect as well. Jesus can both ascend in the spiritual realm and appear in a physical realm at at will. This demonstrates, of course, as I mentioned, the validity of his resurrection, not to unbelievers but to believers. Because it isn't that fact that's going to bring people to Christ. If it was, the whole world would come to Christ immediately. It's going to take, this is how God has ordained it, the proclamation of his word and belief in his word. And that belief, as we'll even see demonstrated here, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, what is he showing up? then, if you will, not only to demonstrate his resurrection to his disciples, to validate what he had taught them, but he also gives him here another foundation, uh, or should I say a capstone on the foundation that he has laid in giving them some essential ministry concepts to hang on to as they will now be sent out into the world. Jesus is going to leave this ministry in the hands of these disciples, and they're going to need a little bit more training. And he's going to emphasize some aspects that would be applicable to us as well as followers of Christ. Notice the first one, he tells them about their condition. From their perspective, remember, and perhaps you might have been in this in a similar type of situation, not exactly, but remember their situation. They're discouraged. They're disappointed. Everything is absolutely fallen apart. We we saw that greatly in the last time in Mary Magdalene, as everything is ripped from her except for her love for Christ, right? And that's what brings back the hope and uh, and and, uh, and endurance here. That they're in that same situation, but we're also mentioned that they're very fearful and understanding. That's, that's the reality of the world, and Jesus says something totally different. Did you see it? He, and he does this twice. He says, peace be with you. 
And then again, he repeats it in verse 21. Peace be with you. Well, this is not a peaceful situation, right? I mean, this is a a situation of great distress and great fear that they're in. And yet, he's telling them really about their true condition in, in that they should be at peace and not be fearful. Now, this phrase here in that culture, peace be with you, was a common solemn greeting. I'll grant that. It conveys more than, however, the idea of hi or hello. This is a formal statement. It might be similar in English to the idea of may God bless you, right? Kind of a blessing that is put on to them. It's, it's somewhat equivalent to that. And that kind of phraseology, it can devolve into some sort of cliché, but that's not what is intended here by Christ, who appears to his disciples in this great state of fear and discouragement, and he utters that very phrase, peace be with you. He's intending to help bolster their faith with significant truth and remind them of it. Paul provides the, a greater detail, and I think it would be helpful to understand the concept of peace that Christ had taught them and then reminds them about in showing up in that difficult situation and uttering those words. I'd like you to e- examine Romans chapter 5 for a greater explanation of this concept of peace. For the Christian, for those that are in Christ who trust him, there are two, and this isn't all there is, but this is all I have the time to go through at this point, is two aspects of peace I want you to understand. One is the peace that those that are in Christ have with God And the second would be the peace that is of God or from God. And that, I think he's trying to convey, at the very least, those two concepts to those disciples as he enters into that room. The peace that those that are in Christ have with God will transcend whatever circumstance they might be in. We've looked at this verse uh, briefly last time, but I, from the perspective of love. But here I want to look at Romans 5 from the perspective of peace. Notice how it begins, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So that is, qualifies who this is talking about. Those that have been declared righteous who believe in Christ, right? So what is their condition? What is their state of being? It is, we have peace, note here, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the condition. It is peace with God. No longer an enemy of God, but now reconciled to Him, and we have peace with Him. Regardless of whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, if you are trusting in Christ, you have been then declared righteous in Him, and the state of your being is actually peace, right? So, 
in an unpeaceful situation, that reality in which existed, Christ comes in and declares that they uh, are actually uh, ha- recognize the peace that they have with God through Jesus Christ. And notice here, then he, Paul elaborates what this peace is about. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that's the condition of the believer. Rejoice, the different attitude, they have hope. And in this life, however, there may be some non-peaceful circumstances. And he addresses that verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and our endurance produces character, and our character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been, which we talked about last week, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. This is a dynamic aspect in which the peace of God is granted to the believer who is justified before him. Because there was a condition of non-peace, and that is the default condition in which everyone outside of Christ currently is. And by the way, (laughs) I'll try not to go down this rabbit trail too far, but I really have great Uh, sympathy for those people that are all caught up in some of these um, end-of-the-world ideas that the world's falling apart, that um, that, that we're either going to get too cold or too warm or have too many people or whatever it might be. It's almost they're living as a frenzy in in their situation because they have no real peace. But the call is the Christian, those that are in Christ, can live in great peace and not fear regardless of whatever circumstances you might find yourself in. Because verse 6, Paul then describes the condition of those that were outside of Christ and who all of us once were. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. He doesn't die for the godly. They don't need death, right? They need to recognize this condition, ungodly, and Christ has died. He goes on to say that um, for scarcely, uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since Therefore, we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? There is no fear in in the sense of receiving the wrath of God because he has died for us and justified us by his blood. Verse 10. This is the concept of peace that is being emphasized, our peace with God, that perhaps often we don't even recognize, and what is most important. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. 
much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, at one point, everyone is an enemy of God. And then God sets the, the terms then of peace, if you will, where we are then reconciled to him. I think an illustration of this, and all illustrations fail to some degree, but you have to think of it this way. Uh, Perhaps you can think about World War II and the various powers. Uh, Nazi Germany doesn't come to the table before the conquering powers and dictate terms of peace, right? They're enemies. They were uh, against the rest of the world, if you will, and here they were defeated and terms of peace then were dictated. Well, that's what God does here. We were once enemies, and then God rescues us and determines the, uh, the terms of this peace agreement with God. That is, through Jesus Christ, who we have now, reconciliation. No negotiation on our part. We have no terms. God has taken his enemy and made them him his friend, has taken those that were uh, at odds with God and now at peace with him. This is the peace that we have through Christ our Lord, justified then before God and no longer an enemy, if you will. God has granted peace to all of those that are in Christ, no longer an enemy of God and no longer then subject to his wrath, right? Wrath is the righteous response to rebellion against God. It, it actually continues on. Some people understand, don't understand the idea of judgment in hell. It is because uh, the, the, uh, the unregenerate continue to rebel. God's wrath is, is secondary in this character in the sense that it is a just response to rebellion. What God has done to those that are in Christ has taken them off the side of rebels, right, and brought them on the side of regenerate. And so now we have then peace with God, so God is no longer against us, but he is for us. Make sense? This is the peace that Christ talks about when he walks in the room of a bunch of fearful, unbelieving disciples, if you will, who do not have courage. He says, take courage, you have peace with God. The second aspect of peace, I think that he's reminding them of, is another major aspect. That is, not only this peace with God, no longer enemies, if you will, God is on your side, but also there is a quality or value of peace that is granted to the believer that is in Christ. And for this, I'm going to, on a text, I'll go ahead and read you one, but uh, we'll go look at a little bit more detail in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn. In John chapter 14, I'm going to read this section while you're turning. In John chapter 14, Christ is talking about not only the suspension of hostility, the wrath that is no longer on those that are in Christ, but a active granting of a condition of peace, if you will, 
even in the midst of chaos, which certainly those disciples found themselves in. God is not hostile, but he also grants them a, um, a concept of peace. Jesus would say it this way to his disciples just a few hours before this very event. He says, 1427, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Um, I don't know, but I think perhaps that word might have rung a little bit in, in when Christ walks in the room and says, peace be with you. He said he leaves them with that and he tells them not to be troubled at heart, to not be afraid. But what are they? They're locked in a room and they're afraid. This is a state of being in which God grants peace or a state of peace even in the midst of awful, terrible circumstances. Remember Jesus with his disciples in teaching them this concept? A stormy night, he's out to sea, they're in a boat and it's going all over the place. They're anxious and fearful, the opposite of peace. And Jesus stands up, he's awakened, and he just simply says, be still. <laughs> and all was at peace. The winds and the waves obey Christ's voice. He will grant peace, beloved, to those that are in Christ, not just a cessation of hostility, God for you, but really a state of well-being. Listen how Paul describes this to the church at Philippi, and it is because of this, right? Not the circumstances they're in, but the state in which they, they have been um, granted peace. He says, uh, we'll drop down to verse 4. I'm in Philippians 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So here is a state of well-being, of praise and delight. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So that's how a Christian should live, recognizing the, the Lord is at hand so you can be at peace and have a, a degree of inward joy regardless of whatever is going on. And he says, don't be anxious about anything, as I mentioned before, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You're anxious, you're fearful, you have something going on. Well, that's a great time to pray. Bring that before God. Do that and note here, verse 7, this is what I wanted to see. What is the response then? Bringing your concerns directly to him, recognizing that the Lord is at hand, engaging and rejoicing what will happen. And verse 7, and the peace of God. This is the peace of God. Not just with God, right? But beyond that, the, the state of being, a peace of God. It surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a state of mind that will guard your heart from what? 
oh, I don't know, how about anxiety? How about fear? How about depression? I'm not criticizing somebody for being depressed or disappointed or being anxious or any of that. I'm just saying, let those requests be known to God. If you're in Christ, he, he will supernaturally grant you this peace that is beyond whatever circumstances you might be in. And notice, I, I like that phraseology, surpasses all understanding. Okay, I can't, I can't logically figure out all of this out or how it's all going to work out. How is the future going to uh, occur, you know, and what's going to transpire? Guess what? The Lord is at hand. He could come at any moment. So why are you anxious? Why are you fearful? You, you, you have peace with God. Your transgressions have been covered by Christ. He is in charge of whatever storm might be coming your way. Trust Him. And so regardless of whatever's going on, beyond your own understanding, He's going to guard your heart and mind so that you will do what? I'll rejoice. Like Job. Though He slay me, yet I will what? I'll praise Him. I'll be rejoicing. I'll know that God has a purpose and a plan for all he is, at, he is in control, and here then peace is granted to them. I, I can't walk away from this text without also emphasizing here, beloved, where he says, verse 8, as a final statement, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellency, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Part of it is just where is your mind at, right? Go to His Word. This is why we encourage you to meditate on God's Word, to read God's Word, to memorize God's Word. Um, there's not a lot of places that you could look and find something true, honorable, lovely, and just, pure, all at the same time. Can I tell you this? Every single word right here fits that description. And I encourage you to spend more time in that, and maybe you might find there be more peace with you. He says that very thing in verse 9, what you have learned, received, and heard, and seen, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I'll just mention one other thing before I move to this next point, and that's from John 16. We'll go back to John here in a second, and, but let me just show you from his teaching in John 16. I'll read it for you. The disciples get this teaching from Jesus in John 16 and verse 31. They kind of say, okay, well, thanks for explaining this. And he says, verse 31, do you now believe? He's challenging them. They, it isn't that they disbelieve him. It's that their faith needs to grow. They need to, to truly believe his, his, who he is and, and what he said. And here, it's focused back on the same concept of peace, which he's going to repeat again in his first appearance to them after his resurrection. But listen to this. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, 
each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. He's predicted all of this ahead of time. He says, yet I'm not alone because the Father's with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Indeed, I hope you hear Christ's message today, peace be with you. The peace that is from God, the peace that is in Christ Jesus. The second thing I want to note here back in our text in verse 20, or chapter 20 and verse 18, he gives them a commissioning. He does repeat this peace with them because they'll need that first and foremost in their mind. But then there's a practice that comes out of that state of being. Verse 18 of chapter 20, as you sent me into, he says, um, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is a summary of what we might call the commissioning. You might be familiar of the, what we call the great commissioning, further detailed in Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, where it says, Christ says to go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and lo, I am behold, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Mark gives a short synopsis of this commissioning, calling the disciples to re- preach repentance, and uh, Luke provides a little bit more calling again for the disciples to go forward and preach repentance in Jesus' name. They are being sent forth then, and he's going to remind them of their calling not to be locked up in a room, but to go forward and to preach the gospel. He has prayed for his preaching of this gospel. Turn back to chapter 17. In John's Gospel, in his high priestly prayer, he's prayed for this event that he now uh, officially commissions them for in his post-resurrection appearance. In verse 14 of chapter 17, he's, he's praying, that is Christ. He says, I've given them your word. And by the way, that is sufficient. That is what we need for all things. I've given you your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's a difference uh, in culture between Christianity, right, and the world, the culture, between Christ and the world. So that's their status. And he says, I've given them your, your word. I don't ask them that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He'll say, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world in chapter 20. That's the point. God has given his disciples his divine word, his revelation, his disclosure, and, and yet these very ones then will be hated by the world 
just as Jesus Christ was hated by the world, don't be surprised as he's sending them out that he wants to know that most people won't receive your message. Doesn't matter how good and kind and nice you are. I don't think there could have been anyone better than Jesus Christ, do you? Someone who never spoke a bad word. <laughs> they couldn't even pull it up in the retro internet if they had it, <laughs> right? Never did a bad thing, unkind thing. And yet, how did the world at large deal with Christ? How did they feel about him? Well, ultimately, they hated him. And those that were closest to him yelled out what? Crucify him. Crucify him. There is a distinction here in this um, relationship that his disciples will have, and that is they have been taken out of the world, and so therefore they're not in the world in that sense. Oh, taken out or from the world to be in Christ, to exist within the world, to proclaim the gospel. But just as Christ was ultimately crucified, you'll be hated as well. And so he's clear to that in his teaching of his disciples, and he calls for God to then to sanctify them, that is to set them apart by his uh, word, to sanctify them in the very truth. This is a commissioning all of those who are in Christ have to then go out into the world in which and the cultures in which we exist and to preach repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Recognizing at the same time that message will be largely ignored and those that proclaim it may be um, uh, maligned and treated poorly, and in some cases even executed for just preaching the gospel. And yet they're to go forth just as Christ was sent by the Father, so the Father sends those that are in Christ to do the same thing. To be set apart by verse 17, by the truth. Your word is truth. This becomes then our canon of authority and the, the reference point by which all truth then will be examined. And as um, Isaac read earlier from the psalm here, where they may put into law in one uh, other country, for example, where that declares that this is a myth, I would say this is the only truth that actually exists. The only thing that is absolute truth is his word, and it, would be, it will set apart those who actually believe it because they'll be in contrary to the, those that would disbelieve. All right, so that's the commission to be at peace with God, proclaim repentance and faith in Christ, and back to our text in verse 22, how will this be accomplished? The capability to accomplish all of this is not going to be in the flesh. It'll be through the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 22 as he shows up and he reminds them of this essential aspect of ministry. He says when he, he breathes on them and he says receive the Holy Spirit. 
Again, picturing the, the very life giving from God who at the very beginning breathes the very breath of, of life into, into man. And here you have it in this dynamic rebirth, if you will, breathing into them the, the very Holy Spirit. Now, this event here that occurs in this upper room is not the promised filling of the Holy Spirit which will come. Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 8, there's a promise that they will receive the Holy Spirit that Christ has promised to them, which we'll look at. Verse, you can jump back to John chapter 16, and we'll look at that in a second. But in any case, you will receive the power from when it comes from the Holy Spirit upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth, Acts chapter 1, 8. So they're waiting for a dynamic power of the Holy Spirit to come, to stay with them, to equip them and enable them to what? To be at peace and preach the gospel. That will come about through the power of the Holy Spirit. This event here in the upper room before them is not that event. They're waiting on that, and they'll wait in the future for that. But this is kind of a first fruit, or at least a reminder of it, when Christ uh, breathes on them, if you will, or sends them, that's the point, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them as a gift. A gift of peace, Christ, the hope of glory. It is through this Holy Spirit they will be reminded of these things in His Word. Now look at John chapter 16, and we'll review this briefly and finish up. John chapter 16, Christ had promised that He would send the Holy Spirit. He said He's going to go away. And it's going to actually be better that he does go away because he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Here in our text in chapter 20, this is the first fruit or prefiguring of that. Talking about the Holy Spirit, what's he going to do? He's going to bring to life those who hear that preached gospel and he will convict the world of sin. Not through the great actions of these men. These men simply will proclaim the gospel and the Holy Spirit will do the very work. Verse 8 of chapter 16, Jesus explains when this Holy Spirit does come, he's going to do what? He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those three things. Then he goes on to explain what he means, which is helpful, concerning sin because they don't believe in me. There is a conviction that comes about through the proclamation of God's Word. The Holy Spirit will use to convict the very heart of sinner to have them recognize that they indeed are an unbeliever. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Jesus Christ, who is the pattern of absolute righteousness, will not be physically seen, but it is through the power of the Holy Spirit someone would recognize uh, perfect righteousness. Third, concerning judgment that the Holy Spirit will bring about because the ruler of the world is judged, verse 11. He says in here, I still have many things to say to you, verse 12, but you can't bear them now. 
And they demonstrate it as he goes to repeat this in meeting them in the upper room. But he does tell them that the Holy Spirit will come to indwell. And verse 13, what will he do? He will guide you into all of the truth, that is, through the Word of God. He won't speak of his own authority. For whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, verse 14, glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is how you will come to Christ and to know Christ. It is through the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. It isn't something you can see it isn't something that you can measure. John, uh, uh, Jesus would tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you remember, it's like the wind. You see the evidence of a wind blowing because you th see things blowing around, but you don't know exactly where it comes from or where it's going. That is what it is like to be born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work. He will glorify Christ. It is how people all of a sudden who are unbelievers, are now believers, who didn't love Christ, who now love Christ. How does that dynamic happen? It is through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. I want to mention one more thing then that he affirms to them in their ministry. He talks about this because some people could be confused about this. Back to chapter 20 and verse 23. In, com in this commissioning of his disciples, reminding them about the peace that they have with God and of God, their task to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes a statement that confuses some. Verse 23, if you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this is not obviously a statement concerning the ability of these disciples to actually forgive sin. Sin is forgiven by Christ and Christ alone. It is on the cross where he says it is finished. The atonement has taken place. What is meant by this then when he tells them as these uh, foundational apostles as they'll become the sent ones for the church to carry on. And that is the church has a vital role and often overlooked, I'd say, in affirming salvation or sending people away. It's a responsibility we have collectively as the very church of God. And that role shouldn't be taken lightly. The church as we gather together corporately, we affirm whether someone's in the faith or not. When you come to join and be a part of this church, for example, we're not going to let you just walk an aisle, sign a piece of paper and say, I want to be a part. If we're loved to have you. That's great. But what the church does is, is make an affirmation that, yes, this person understands who Christ is. They truly have repented of their sin. They have an inward desire to serve Christ, and, and they are demonstrating that they have been forgiven of their sin. It has been forgiven. Who's it been forgiven by? God. 
God who forgives us all our iniquities. And the church is merely recognizing that testimony and confirming it. And I tell you, it's helpful collectively to do it as a church gather together. This is why as a church we gather together, we talk about church membership. It is an affirmation and recognition that you are actually in the body of Christ, which is essential. And the church has that uh, responsibility. You might think of it as authority, but it's really the responsibility to, uh, to counsel somebody and help them to really uh, make sure they understand the gospel, that they are truly following Christ. But you know why? This is a matter of life and death. And we don't want to deceive anybody into thinking, not trying to be mean to people, but we don't want to think anybody be thinking that I'm in Christ and they're out, right? There's this parable that Jesus gives, a story about wheat and tares, right? Those who who think they're in, but they're not. Oftentimes, he would talk about those people who said they believe, but they really don't believe. And at the end of the age, there'll be many who cry out, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, the church's responsibility is to to the, by the power of the Spirit, the best we can. We're not saying we do this in perfection, but we have this authority to say, hey, we think you're in the body of Christ. Come, be a part, or send them away. And this is part of what church discipline is about. If they won't follow Christ, then we'll confront them. We'll call them to follow Christ. We'll call them to repent and to believe. But if they won't, then we'll send them out. Our goal and mission isn't here just to fill up an auditorium. Now, trust me, I weep to see these little ones who quote Scripture, sing, pray, and others that come, and I want to see... I want to see myriads and myriads of people coming to Christ. We're not trying to turn people away. But yet again, our goal isn't just to gather a group of folks if we wanted to do that, we could put on a better show, right? We, we could have better facilities. We could, we could spend money on all these other things that will gather all kinds of people. We could, we could, we could go borrow $4 million and buy some big building and put on a show, and they'll fill it up until it's recognized that that preacher isn't preaching Christ and Him crucified, and they all scatter. And the sad thing is, yeah, there might have been many who were in Christ, but they'll never know it. And others who more so that might think that they're in and they're really not. What a great responsibility we have in firming those that are in Christ and gathering together and saying, yes, you are, you are making a profession of Christ and we affirm that or sending those that are making false professions so that they might one day recognize that and come to Christ. A great responsibility we have. Christ's first appearance then to the disciples here in this room, he's doing this to prepare them for ministry. The ministry that is crucial and at hand for them He reminds them of the real condition that they exist in. They're in a moment of great anxiety, great fear, and depression, and he just simply says, peace be with you. And maybe you can carry that phrase with you, thinking about who Christ is. 
peace with you at all times. He then reminds them of their calling, right? It isn't just so that you can hang out and, and, and receive the benefits that God gives, which is, is a great privilege, but beyond that, a calling to go forth and preach the gospel, calling others to repentance and faith, and not by your own conviction and courage, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, to call sinners to conversion, to become saints, and call out those that rebel and warn them of the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will grant us a good understanding of your word. May we hear the very words of Christ. May it be help, comfort to those that need your comfort, perhaps some conviction for those that are outside of Christ that today that they would find their refuge in him and a peace beyond understanding. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, you may take a moment now where you're at to think on these things, respond directly to Christ as he may have spoken to you today. Understanding. May your peace be with us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to number 304 in our hymnals. Crown him with many crowns. Revelation 19:12 says, and on his head were many crowns.
thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let, his, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemies, and gathered them out of the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness. In a solitary way, they found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainteth in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works for the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.